Remain standing for our sermon text from Romans 1. Again, submit yourself to God's holy word. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider the truths of Romans 1, give us hearts and minds to submit to what it says, to believe that it's true, and to be conformed to it. We pray that you would transform us through your word and through your spirit working through your word and in us. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. If the world might accuse the Apostle Paul of going negative in last week's passage, it would accuse him all the more of going judgmental in today's text. Why is Paul so concerned about homosexuality? Isn't homosexual behavior just... One sin among many. Some would say that Paul is just on his soapbox here. He isn't isn't sharing the love of Christ anymore. Not at this point. Rather, he's engaging in unnecessary hate speech. But this cynical evaluation fails at many points, as we'll see. For starters, it fails to understand both love and hate Biblically, sharing God's perspective on sin, on homosexuality in particular, is not hateful, but loving. Approving of homosexual behavior is truly hateful. But accusing Paul of being hateful and judgmental here also misses his larger point and his logic. Homosexuality is not actually the root sin in this passage, nor is it the most important sin for Paul. 
When we read what Paul says carefully, we'll see that homosexual behavior is God's judgment. It's the penalty, the punishment for engaging in the more fundamental sin of idolatry. And we'll see today that, uh, that idolatry and homosexuality have something in common that leads Paul to use this as his prime example. All sins, particularly same-sex relations, all sins are downstream of idolatry. All the sins in verses 29, 30, and 31 are the consequences of replacing God with something that is not God. And so when we ask the question, what is the worst sin? You know, is it, is it murder? You know, wiping somebody off, off the face of the earth. Is it uh, sexual immorality? Is it homosexuality? We could go through. Is it torturing someone so that they lose all hope and all ability to have joy? But according to Paul in Romans 1, the worst sin is not horizontal. Those are horizontal things that we think about doing to others. But the worst sin, the primary sin, the root sin, is a vertical sin. It is not esteeming God as God. It is not worshiping God as God, not serving him alone. And so the consequences of replacing God with something that is not gone, God is these sins that Paul fleshes out. And it's because we want, idolatry is wanting something more than we want God. It's when God is no longer the one that we must have. Something else is in that place. Something else, there's something else that we must have. And whatever that thing or those, whatever that thing is or those things are, it, it rules over us, whatever it is. And we'll do anything, however destructive to ourselves, however destructive to others, we'll do whatever we must to have it, to keep it, to increase it. Idols demand absolute loyalty. Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies on is your God. It's fitting that we read from Luke 4 today because that's what Satan has been doing from the very beginning, trying to get man to worship something other than God. And and that means you're worshiping him. That's what he wants, is you to take your focus off of God and to put it on him and, and the creation. But Jesus says, no, you shall worship and serve the Lord your God only. So God at present is pouring out his wrath on idolatrous humans. And how's he doing it right now? How's he doing it? He does it by filling them up with sins. Think about that. That, 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 that happens in this life. Now, in the future, on the final day, when Jesus returns, God's wrath will fall on unrepentant sinners in the form of eternal death and hell. But in the present, God takes out his anger against unrepentant sinners by giving them over to their sin and their shame, by allowing them to run headlong into spiritual suicide, which is what homosexuality is. 
God's judgment is shown in the removal of his restraint against all manner of sin and then the delivering over actively to that sin. Now, when a person is living under the grace of God, God's favor on that person will be evident because that person will be slaying the idols in his heart and forsaking his sins. That's, that's what it looks like to be under the grace and favor of God. This freedom from sin is a blessing and, and uh, a sign of God's favor. But when a person is still under God's judgment, under the wrath of God, when he's not received the righteousness that comes from God, God's judgment on that person will also be evident because that person will be going deeper into idolatry and deeper into the sins that flow from idolatry. And this bondage to sin is the wrath and judgment of God. Every human is either in the process of being given over to more sin or in the process of being rescued from remaining sin. In verses 24 to 27, Paul says that God, God gives idolaters over to disgraceful passions. That's the phrase he uses. Look at those verses with me at the top of your handout, starting in verse 24. Therefore God has also given them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that they disgrace their bodies among themselves. They have indeed exchanged the truth of God for the lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Because of this, God has given them over to disgraceful passions. For their females have exchanged their natural sexual role for that which is contrary to nature. And the males likewise abandoning the, nat the natural sexual role of the female, have become inflamed in their desire for one another. Males committing shameful acts with males and receiving them in themselves the due punishment for their delusion. The key phrase is because of this, in verse 26, the reason God gives sinners over to their sins is stated in verse 25, which is really a restatement of verses 21 to 23. You'll notice Paul begins verse 24 with, therefore, so he's building on verses 21 to 23, but it's okay that we left that out. We, we covered that last week because 25 goes into it again. Verse 25 restates what was in 21 and 25. And, and it's stated... The, the reason in verse 25 is stated in two different ways. The first half of verse 25 says that they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Now that verb exchange is the same word used up in verse 23 where Paul says that they exchanged God's glory for the glory of, uh, uh, you know, the glory of images of creatures. The essence of idolatry is replacing God with something in creation that is not God. Replacing God's glory with man-made glory. Replacing the creator with the creation. And the second half of verse 25 expands on what it means to exchange God's truth for the lie. It says they worship the creature rather than the creator. In other words, they engage in idolatry. 
They replaced the creator with created things. They exchanged God and his glory for, for their own gods and their own glory. They cherish their sins more than they cherish the holy God. Now, before we move on from verse 25 to, you know, to consider the punishment for such idolatry, we need to make sure we've identified the lingering idolatry in ourselves. Now, these verses are about unbelievers, the unregenerate, those that are unsaved. That's what Paul's highlighting here. But, but he's, but he's going to come back around and say that all of us were in this boat. And, and as we're thinking about these things, we need to make sure we identify those lingering idols in ourselves. Anytime we sin, anytime we sin, we're exchanging God's truth for the lie. And it's the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden, particularly Eve. Satan's lie, the lie that he's been telling ever since Genesis 3, is that God is withholding good things from you, so it's up to you to go out and get them. You, 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 gotta, you gotta engineer it for yourself, and, I, and I'm here to help. That's what he offered Jesus. Just, you can have it now. I'll give it to you now. Why wait? The devil's lie is that you need something in this creation more than you need your God, your creator. And so do you see how every sin that, that you commit can be traced back to that lie that Satan told Eve in the garden? The origin of every sin is that, is that seed of covetous desire the seed that the that the devil somehow managed to plant in man's heart at the beginning paul equates covetousness with idolatry two times in ephesians 5 5 he says for this you know that no fornicator no unclean person no covetous person who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Some English Bibles translate covetous person with greedy person. Covetousness is the greedy desire for something that God has not given you. And Paul says that a covetous or greedy person is an idolater. He is not esteeming God as God. That's the foundational sin. He writes something similar in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The, po the poisonous fountainhead from which every sin flows is idolatry or covetousness, which is the ungodly desire for that which is not God and that which God has not given you. It's the serving and the worshiping of that thing, the replacing uh, of God with that thing. So what are your idols? That's the question we need to ask as, as we read through this, pa this passage. What do you want more than you want God? What do you esteem more than you esteem God? When you identify your idols, in, you know, the idols in your heart, you've identified the wellspring of your irrational, sinful behavior. The lie of Genesis 3 is still the devil's best weapon against you. 
your sin, even as a Christian, and as, as Christians, we deal with these sins still. We, we, we are not free from the presence of these sins and the pollution of sin. And your sin, as a Christian, is rooted still in, a, in an idolatrous rejection of God's glory. That's, that's right there at the beginning of it all. Whenever you sin, you're buying into the lie that earthly things and earthly glory and earthly pleasures are preferable to God and his glory and the eternal pleasures that, you can, that, that can be experienced forevermore in his presence at his right hand. So this week, do an inventory of your heart. Examine it critically. You, you might need some help. You, you might need to ask somebody close to you to help you identify the idols that you've fashioned in your heart. Now, some of your idols might be good things in themselves, right? Uh, properly used. But they are things that you are putting ahead of God, that you want more than you want Him. Wanting a peaceful and prosperous life is not bad in itself, but it becomes an idol when it becomes the organizing principle of your life, the thing that everything else revolves around. Ask God to search your heart as, as the Psalms says, search your heart and to reveal, re- reveal to you what you want in life more than you want God and his glory. Begin thinking now, what is it you want more than God and his glory? What's the fountainhead or the fountainheads of your sin? So what's the penalty for not worshiping God above all? For not having him enthroned in your heart how does God punish idolaters in verses 24 26 and 27 Paul highlights the punishment of sexual impurity particularly homosexuality excuse me homosexual behavior is God's punishment there's also an eternal punishment for unrepentant sinners, that is to come. And Paul refers to that in verse 32, as we'll see. But in this life, before we face that judgment, a punish, there's, there's a punishment for not submitting yourself to God. And here, Paul highlights sexual impurity, homosexuality in particular. It's not a punishment because it leads to AIDS. It's not a punishment because it raises our health care costs, or anything like that. It's a punishment in itself. That's, that's what Paul's saying here. Because when homosexuals give in to their disgraceful passions, verse 26, and commit shameful acts, verse 27, they disgrace their bodies, verse 24. The last part of verse 27 says that they receive in themselves, some translations say, in their persons, in in their bodies and souls, the due punishment for their delusion, their deludedness. The punishment of sin, Paul says, punishment for sin, Paul says, is sin. You see that? You see that logic? Now, when God gives people over to impurity, Is he passive or is he active in doing so? 
In other words, does he, ju- does he just step out of the way and allow human depravity to do its thing? Or does he take an active role in, mu- in moving humans deeper into that downward spiral of sin? We could ask the question this way. When God gives humans over to their sins, does he passively let go of the canoe so that it's dragged by the strong current of the river? Or is God active like the judge who hands over the murderer to the executioners to be punished for his crime? The verb give over, which is used in the Old Testament as well as the New in the Greek Old Testament, it indicates an active role on God's part. In the Old Testament, God actively handed Israel's enemies over to Israel and sometimes the other way he actively handed Israel over to her enemies as judgment. 1 Corinthians 5 says that's where Paul determines that a member of the church at Corinth needed to be actively given over to Satan so that his sinful nature might be destroyed and his spirit saved. Paul was recommending that the church take action by excommunicating this man from their fellowship, by giving him over to the realm of the devil in hopes that that would lead to his repentance, that God would use it for his repentance. Now, of course, sinners are always responsible for their choices, okay? So if we say God is actively handing over, that doesn't then mean that that sinners are not responsible for the sinful choices they make. No, they're responsible, but it's also true that God actively and personally gives sinners over to sins. God's punishment for sin is more sin. The due penalty for sin in this life is increased bondage to sin. What this means is that God is actively and personally angry with unrepentant sinners. We, we fleshed that out last week. His wrath is not impersonal or passive. And, and this is important because increasingly, evangelical Bible teachers are, are wanting to understand God's wrath in terms of impersonal laws of nature. They, they want to think of God's judgment on sin against sin is just a function of cause and effect because it maybe makes God a little nicer. You know, we don't want to think of God actively judging in this way. So when they get to Romans 1, they don't see a God of wrath taking out his personal anger against sinners by giving them over to their sins like the sin of homosexuality. They instead see a God who just lets nature take its course on humans who decide to sin in certain ways. Now, it's true that, that these sins, like homosexuality, they, are, they do go against nature, right? It's, God didn't set it up that way. So it's a violation of the way God created things. It's a violation of the created order. So that's true, and there are consequences with that. But in this passage, if we do justice to the language here, it is God actively, personally giving over to sin. And so these, this, this, these Bible teachers and interpreters, they, they're taking their cues more from deism and, and the Enlightenment than they are from Scripture. I want to read you a, a, a longish quote from a commentator 
named Tom Schreiner. He says in his commentary in Romans, God is vitally and personally involved in his creation. In the Old Testament, the judgments inflicted on pagan nations and on Israel are invariably the outworking of God's personal decisions. So too here in Romans 1, the handing over to sin is not to be construed impersonally. Three times in verses 24, 26, and 28, it is repeated that God handed over people to sin. In the Old Testament, God hands those who are judged over to enemies. To think of laws, quote-unquote laws, operating impersonally apart from God's personal superintendence reveals that many modern people think differently about God's involvement with the created world than the ancient Jews did. God is not a bystander who merely permits the immoral consequences to develop. The consequences that are inflicted because of sin are the result of God's personal decision. The wrath of God then is to be understood in personal terms. It is his holy and righteous response to those who do not worship and esteem him as God. God hands people over to their own desires which are themselves an expression of his judgment. End quote. That's, that's heavy stuff. But until, and unless we grasp this, we cannot fully understand the good news, the gospel. Until we understand the wrath of God, we cannot appreciate the righteousness of God that he gives to those who trust in Jesus. In Numbers 11, God gave the Israelites over to their desire for meat, the meat that they had in Egypt, remember. And he says, you shall eat meat. You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until it comes out of, at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? You see that language, rejected God. They failed to worship God, to give God his due recognition and worship and service. When God gives humans over to their sins, it's a very personal activity. And, and, it, and it must be. If, if, if that were not true, then his blessings and his favor would not be personal either, Right? How would we know that those are personal? If we want God, to, if we want a God who is personal and active in his kindness to us and his love for us, we must accept that he's also personal and active in his anger against unrepentant sinners, which even that is an outflow of his love. We still need to answer the question that we asked at the beginning. Why does Paul single out same-sex relations? Why, why didn't Paul focus on other forms of sexual immorality or just another sin more generally? The reason, at least one reason, I think the primary reason, is that homosexuality, like adult idolatry, is unnatural against creation. It, it fits, it, it, it's, uh, this, that sin functions as a fitting illustration of idolatry because both homosexuality and idolatry are contrary to nature, contrary to the way God set things up, okay? 
Idolatry is unnatural because it's contrary to God's intention for man. He made us to be worshipers of him. And when we don't do that, what are we doing? We're exchanging the truth for the lie. In the sexual sphere, the mirror image of idolatry is homosexual acts, behavior, which similarly turns the natural order of things on its head. Now, all sexual immorality is sin, but not all sexual immorality is unnatural, contrary to nature, the way homosexuality is. In, in the following verses, Paul broadens his scope to include all idolaters. Not all unsaved sinners are given over to the shame and disgrace of same-sex relations, but all unsaved sinners are given over to a worthless mind. In verses 24 to 27, Paul aimed his, you know, we could think, Paul aimed his sniper rifle at the sin of homosexuality which is a, a unique result of an idolatrous heart. But now in verses 28 to 31, Paul aims his shotgun at the vast array of sins that congregate in the human heart. God gives some idolaters over to homosexuality, but God gives all idolaters over to a worthless mind. As I read verses 28 to 31, note the reason and the result here. The reason God hands them over to a worthless mind is that they reject the knowledge of God. And the result is all manner of sin as the catalog in verses 28 to 31 indicates. Their punishment is that they do things that are not fitting. So starting in verse 28, and just as they have not deemed it worthwhile to have the knowledge of God, so God has given them over to a worthless mind to do things that are not fitting. And then in verse 29, Paul launches into a list of idolatrous fruits. Being filled with all manner of unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, greed, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, ill will. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, without loyalty, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. In multiple ways and at multiple points, all of us find ourselves in these verses. Now, Paul's list isn't exhaustive. He's got about 11 other lists, and there's overlap so it's not exhaustive, but it's wide-ranging, wide-ranging. And it covers most of the categories of sin, from the general to the specific, from the social to the familial, from sins of the tongue to sins of the heart, from sexual immorality to envy to murder to gossip to deceitfulness to arrogance, just to name a few. All of these sins are the product of futile, worthless reasoning. Verse 28 is very similar to verse 21. Both verses talk about the effects of rejecting what we know about God, the knowledge of God. Verse 21 says, For although they have known God, they have not glorified him as God or given thanks to him, but have become futile in their reasoning. 
And then verse 28 similarly says, and just as they have not deemed it worthwhile to have the knowledge of God, so God has given them over to a worthless mind. You see the parallels? You can't sin, you can't sin while you're in your right mind. It's impossible. Sin is insanity. It's irrational behavior. It's a lie. It's a rejection of reality because it's a rejection of God. And so no one in their right mind has ever sinned. You've never sinned in your right mind. Earlier, I exhorted you to examine your heart, even this week, even today, even now, and identify the idols that you've fashioned there for yourself. Maybe that you're slow to destroy. And I encourage you to ask God to, to help you, to, to reveal to you what, what you want in life more than you want God and his glory. And you can start that, that exercise by identifying the grip that any of these sins have on you. And then follow these sins upstream to their idolatrous source or sources. You gossip because you desire something more than you desire God. You're boastful or arrogant because you prize your glory more than God's. You have ill will towards someone because you're more focused on earthly things than on heavenly things. You envy because you long for temporary things more than eternal things. You deceive, you lie because you want a certain outcome in this life more than you want the blessings that come from the right hand of God, from being in the presence of God. And so use Paul's list this week to help you seek and destroy the idols in your heart. Seek and destroy the idols in your heart. But as you go through this list and as, and as you use it to identify the lingering sin in your heart, you must not identify with any of these vices or categories of sin. Okay, that's important too. What do I mean? Well, if you're a Christian, and because you're a Christian, these sins do not define you. They are not who you are if you are in Christ. Okay, so they linger. You still find yourself committing them, but it's not your identity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He could have said idolaters there. Unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's another one of his vice lists. The next verse says, and such were some of you. Okay, Some of you, people of God, fellow Christians, were this. Such were some of you. But, but, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, declared righteous, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
That's not you anymore. And the, the key word there is were. Such were, past tense, some of you. But if you've been born again, God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and then by the power of the Spirit of God has washed you, sanctified you, justified you, which means declared you righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of your own. Now you still have unrighteous deeds to kill. No one is sinless in this life. You still have unrighteous deeds to mortify. But those deeds don't define you anymore. You still have idols to smash, but you're no longer an idolater in Christ. It's not who you are. This means that you're not under the wrath of God in the present, and you won't experience the wrath of God in the future, in the world to come. Now, But if, you, if you're not born again, if you're not a believer, if you're not in Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus to give you his righteousness because you lack righteousness, if, if, if you're still an idolater, if you're still in your sins, as Jesus puts it, the message of the second half of Romans 1 is particularly for you. It's that God gives idolaters over to righteous wrath. Okay, that's backing up and looking at the whole second half of the chapter. God's righteous wrath takes a certain form in this life. It takes the form of being given over to your sins and the shame that comes with your sins. But verse 32 points to the decreed wrath of God, which is yet to come. Look at verse 32. They know the righteous decree of God that those who practice such things deserve death, yet they not only do these things but also applaud those who practice them. So they not only do them, but to make themselves feel better, they celebrate it and encourage others to do it. That's the only way they know how to alleviate their consciences that condemn them because they know they're under condemnation. You don't have to have a Bible. You don't have, have to have ever heard the gospel or have read scripture to know that the God that you know exists, who is powerful and eternal, has a decree that means your judgment for your sins. And so their suppression of the truth that Paul referred to up in verse 18 has been unsuccessful. Humans are not only aware of God's power and deity, they're aware that they deserve death. And, and the death here is, is not just physical death, but both deaths, the first and second death. Eternal death is in view here. Even if, even if they've never come into contact with God's word, they know deep down that sinners deserve eternal death separation from God forever, eternal hell, eternal destruction. These are biblical words for that everlasting punishment. They know the wrath of God because it has been revealed to them. But what they don't know, and what they don't know unless they've heard the gospel, what they don't know and what we need to tell them if they haven't heard it, is the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. God has provided a way for idolaters to escape eternal death. 
a way to be saved, saved from the wrath of God, both in this life and in the life to come, in the world to come. Later in Romans 3, verse 21 and 22, Paul will put it this way. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been revealed, it's been shown, apart from the law. Okay, so this is a righteousness that we get apart from having to obey the law to get it, which we can't do anyway. This righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then he defines what this righteousness of God is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You see, the wrath of God and the righteousness of God have in common that both of them were revealed supremely in the death of Christ on the cross. That's what the wrath of God and the righteousness of God have in common. They were both supremely revealed in the death of Christ on the cross. What do I mean? On the cross, Jesus demonstrate, demonstrated his sinless righteousness by obeying his Father all the way to the point of death. He lived a perfect, sinless, obedient life all the way up to that point, and then it climaxed, his obedience climaxed by going to the cross in obedience to his Father. So the righteousness that Christ demonstrated in his life and in his death is the righteousness of God that he gives to everyone who simply believes in him, trusts in him, and entrusts themselves to him. Also on the cross, the wrath of God was manifested because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. The wrath, that wrath, is what every human deserves. And so the death that Paul refers to in verse 32 is the death, ultimately the death that Christ died for you if you're a Christian. Okay, so either you have to die that death or Christ died it for you and you don't have to die that death. But, but see, on the cross, Jesus endured God's infinite wrath so that he could give you his infinite righteousness. You see that? He endured God's infinite wrath so he could give you his infinite righteousness. And so on the cross, both the wrath of God and the righteousness of God are on full display. You see them most clearly there, both of them at the same time. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, the unrighteous, to God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God in his wrath gives idolaters over to what they want. That's what rampant homosexuality is. Primarily. God giving human, idolaters over to what they want. Unrepentant, idolatrous sinners want life without God. So God gives it to them. They, they want to serve idols that cannot satisfy them, so God gives them over to their self-made gods. And this would be every one of us, 
apart from the grace of God rescuing us in spite of ourselves. In the end, God will give idolaters the eternal hell, the eternal death that they deserve. The wrath of God is being revealed and it will be revealed once and for all at the return of Christ. But God in his mercy also gives idolaters what they do not deserve. That's the good news. Not all idolaters, but those who believe in Jesus. He gives us what we do not deserve. We, we deserve it just as much as these idolaters that Paul is talking about. We don't identify with them because that's what we were, but we still deserve what they deserve. We still deserve it just as much as we did before we were saved in ourselves, apart from Christ, in our own actions, in our own righteousness. And so the good news is that he gives idolaters, in the end, what they do not deserve. The righteousness of God has been revealed in the gospel to former idolaters who have forsaken their sins and turned to Christ. That's you, fellow believer. So believers, Christians need not fear God's wrath because we've received God's righteousness. We're on that side now. And so this gives you, as a believer, this gives you freedom, the freedom and the humility to name your lingering idols and to confess them to God. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to transform. He's ready to grant new freedom, newfound freedom. So you have nothing to fear. So you can ask yourself, what, what idols are jostling for position in my heart? Which idols are competing with God for first place in my life? So this this passage prompts us to look for places where we're wicked, greedy, full of strife, prideful, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, sexually immoral. It prompts each of us to ask, what would it look like for me to turn away from my most besetting sin? How, how would I live differently if I sought God and his glory Above all else at that point, at that point of my besetting sin, what would it look like for me to turn from that and to stop giving creation glory, stop giving myself glory, stop esteeming something that is not God more than I esteem God and to, to seek God and his glory at that place? What would it look like? How would it change the way you think and talk and act and relate Keep asking yourself these, these questions. Keep asking God to reveal your sin and your upstream idols to you. And in God's strength, keep destroying your idols. Let's pray. God, we need your help to continue killing the idols in our heart, the, the, our tendency to believe the lie instead of your truth, 
to kill, to mortify the sins that that flow from our idolatry. And we thank you for rescuing us from bondage to sin and the wrath that you pour out on those who are unrepentant, even in this life, giving them over to their sin. And we pray that you would continue to free us and, and give us new, uh, new desires to replace the old ones, that you would shine your light, the light of the gospel, in the remaining dark places of our hearts, and that you would strengthen us by your grace to, to smash, to destroy those things that we love and glorify and esteem and want more than we want you. We ask for your help and we give you thanks in the name of Jesus, our Savior from sins. Amen.